Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Sarah Adamson, education and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Also joining us as a co-host today is Dr. Aaron Robinson, consultant dermatologist and director of medical education at the Skin Health Institute. Thanks, Sarah and Annalise. It's great to be back again for part two of this relevant and often complex topic, oral mucosal diseases. In part one, we focused on mouth ulcers, in particular, recurrent aphthous stomatitis. In part two today, we'll explore a broader array of oral presentations, including oral lichen planus, Sjogren's syndrome, and presentations suggestive of malignancy. To help us unpack this topic, we are once again fortunate to have been joined by two guest experts, Dr. Simone Belarov and Associate Professor Laura Skardamalia. Dr. Simone Belarov is an oral medicine specialist and has been a dental practitioner for almost 20 years. She completed her oral medicine training last year after completing her PhD at the University of Melbourne in the field of oral medicine, with a focus on oral cancer. Simone works at multiple locations, including private practice in Hawthorne East, public health at the Royal Dental Hospital Melbourne, and alongside Associate Professor Laura Scardamalia at the Royal Melbourne Hospital Immunobullus and Oral Mucosal Service. Simone is also a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Dental School. Simone has a special interest in mucosal diseases and management of chronic orofacial pain. Thanks for inviting me back for part two. It's great to be here. Associate Professor Laura Scardamalia has been a dermatologist for nearly 20 years and is the head of dermatology at Western Health, the head of clinical services at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, consultant dermatologist at the Royal Children's Hospital, and clinical associate professor at the University of Melbourne. She is the head of the Immunobullus and the Oral Mucosal Service, the Autoimmune Dermatology Service, and the Adult Vascular Anomaly Service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and is committed to general adult, paediatric, and complex medical dermatology. She established the Royal Melbourne Hospital Multidisciplinary Oral Mucosal Service alongside oral mucosal physician Dr. Tammy Yap over a decade ago and very much enjoys working collaboratively to benefit the patient seen alongside her dermatology and oral mucosal colleagues, including Dr. Simone Belabrov. Thanks, Annalise. It's really great to be here for part two of oral mucosal disease. Before launching into various oral mucosal diseases, Simone, could you recap on what the oral mucosa is? Sure, Sarah. The oral mucosa is the mucous membrane lining that is essentially the skin of the oral cavity. This includes the lips, in a lining of the lips, which is called the labial mucosa, the cheeks, which is called the buccal mucosa, the hard and soft palates, floor of mouth, the anterior two-thirds of the tongue that includes the top surface or the dorsal surface, and the surface next to the floor of the mouth called the ventral tongue. In addition, it includes the gums, which is called the gingivae, and the retromolar region located behind the wisdom teeth. So it's basically everything in the mouth that is not the teeth that begins at the lips and ends in front of the oropharynx. In part one, we discuss the impacts of lupus on the oral mucosa. Another autoimmune disorder that can affect the oral mucosa is Sjogren's syndrome, 
What is Sjogren's and how can it affect the oral mucosa? Sjogren's syndrome is part of the connective tissue disease autoimmune family and a chronic systemic inflammatory disease. It involves the target tissues of the salivary glands in the mouth and lacrimal glands in the eye. These thus cause the main presenting issues of dry mouth and eyes, known as sicker symptoms. Laura, what are some of the red flags on history that should make us think about this as a possible diagnosis? If a patient presents with the main complaint being dryness of the mouth and or eyes, one should certainly consider this diagnosis. Also, if the patient has any other connective tissue disease symptoms or signs such as lupus, this diagnosis is very important to entertain. There are two forms of Sjogren's. The primary disease, which occurs when you experience only dry eyes and mouth, and the secondary disease, which occurs when you have these symptoms, as well as other associated autoimmune diseases. How common is Sjogren's? Sjogren's is thought to occur in 1-3% to of the general population, but in up to 20-30% to of patients with lupus. It is important to diagnose and treat this early as it can cause significant debility and damage, including severe tooth decay and oral candida infections. How does Sjogren's present? Unfortunately, it is often a delayed diagnosis, as dry eyes and dry mouth can be a common symptom and sometimes ignored until there are more severe manifestations. A common sign is painless salivary gland enlargement, which is due to the autoantibodies and immune cells attacking these glands. Eventually, this causes significant dryness, known as xerostomia, which is the most debilitating part of this disease. Sometimes the patient will have a red, shiny tongue without normal papillae, and there may also be angular chelitis. So clinically, we look for these symptoms and signs to diagnose. Are there any diagnostic tests we should consider? We can test the blood for associated autoantibodies, especially Rho-La antibodies, which are found in 60% of patients with Sjogren's, but they're not specific to this diagnosis. There are certain diagnostic tests which may be done by ophthalmologists, including the Schirmer test, which looks at tear production, and the Rose-Bengal dye test, which looks for conjunctival scarring. For the dry mouth, there are also tests done to determine whether the salivary glands are inflamed and producing less salivary fluid, as well as biopsies of salivary glands from the lower lip. But we tend to rely on clinical findings and blood screening tests rather than any more invasive tissue testing. Simone, what are some of the general measures that we can use to optimise the management of oral symptoms for patients with Sjogren's? So the treatment measures are largely based on symptomatic relief and are supportive in general. There is a wide range of dry mouth products available at pharmacies and through dental practitioners and aim to lubricate the oral mucosa to provide relief from xerostomia. An important function of saliva is to restore oral pH and regulate the microbial population. These patients are prone to dental decay, so need to regularly see their dentists and use protective agents like high fluoridated toothpaste. What other therapies do you use? As in most of our chronic inflammatory diseases, we're aiming for symptom control and maintenance. Some patients find relief with salivary stimulating sugar-free gums and lozenges and lubricants which try to mimic artificial saliva, as well as avoiding agents that can make the mucous membranes drier, 
such as some antihistamines, antidepressants, anticholinergics and decongestants helpful. Treating coexisting candida is also very important and these patients may need topical agents with clotrimazole, myconazole or nystatin preparations or systemic treatments such as low-dose oral fluconazole. We try and avoid immunosuppressive or anti-inflammatory treatments for patients with primary Sjogren's. Our oral mucosal physicians are experts at treating these patients, and they need regular dental checks to prevent severe caries and tooth destruction, as well as expert ophthalmologist care, which is critical to prevent the associated eye disease. Another condition that can present in the oral mucosa is lichen planus. Aaron, unfortunately, this is quite a common disorder and the most common oral disease we see in our multidisciplinary clinic. This is an inflammatory disorder which can affect the skin, nails, scalp, and the mucous membranes, and is typically seen in middle-aged adults. Cutaneous lichen planus tends to be less resistant to treatment and often will resolve after a few years. However, mucosal, nail, and scalp disease unfortunately tends to be much more chronic and recalcitrant. The mouth is one of the commonest areas to be affected, and disease can extend into the esophagus. What features do we see on the examination of the mouth? We typically see oral lichen planus in middle-aged women, and the clinical finding can be divided into three clinical subtypes, reticular, erythematous or atrophic, and erosive. A patient may have more than one subtype. The most common type we see is the reticular subtype, where white, lace-patterned reticulate lines and papules and plaques are seen, commonly in the buccal mucosa. Erythematous oral lichen planus is often present with the reticulate subtype. There tend to be red patches of atrophy. How does erosive lichen planus present? The name sounds very painful. Yes, Annalise, it actually often is very painful. Erosive oral lichen planus is characterised by erosions or frank ulcers, and often accompanied with the other subtypes too. Many patients will have symmetrical and bilateral disease, with common sites for reticular lichen planus being the cheeks, especially the posterior buccal mucosa. The tongue and the vermilion of the lower lip are other sites commonly seen with reticular lichen planus. Desquamative gingivitis is also seen and can be very severe. Some reticular lichen planus is asymptomatic and only noticed after dental review, but often the other subtypes are very painful and symptomatic with significant burning, interfering with eating and drinking and swallowing. There is often fragile bleeding mucosa with mild trauma such as eating and teeth brushing. Some patients will have post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and scarring, rarely esophageal, ocular, otic, Nasal and laryngeal areas may be involved and cause significant morbidity. I've heard that oral lichen planus can be associated with SCC. Can you comment on this? Yes, we certainly keep a close eye on our patients with oral lichen planus as there is a small but significant risk of squamous cell carcinoma developing in chronically inflamed lesions of oral lichen planus. And our oral medicine physicians are experts at monitoring these patients. Laura, you've mentioned that lichen planus can affect other areas of the body. Can you please tell us how this might present? Sure. Aaron, we always determine if there's any other areas where lichen planus can affect patients presenting with oral lichen planus, in particular the genitalia, which are commonly associated. 
Importantly, genital involvement is an area to ensure is examined and managed well, as other than there often being significant symptoms such as burning, stinging, dysuria, dyspareunia, scarring and pain, there is also a small but significant risk of malignancy here too. It's time for our first skin tip. Mucosal tissue is not just in the mouth. Lichen planus can also affect the non-mucosal skin. Laura, can you please tell us how this might present? Yeah, sure, Aaron. So we always also check whether there are any other features of cutaneous lichen planus. We're looking for the classic violaceous flat-topped papules, known as the four Ps, the pruritic polygonal purple papules and plaques, which are typically very itchy and often found on the volar wrists and lower legs as well as the lower back. On close inspection, one might notice the fine white lines known as Wickham's striae on the cutaneous lesions too. There are various cutaneous forms of cutaneous lichen planus including hypertrophic, palmar plantar, zosteriform, inverse, annular, actinic, pigmented or ashy type, atrophic, perforating and follicular or lichen planopolaris to name a few. The scalp is another important site as lichen planus can cause scarring alopecia. We also check the nails as lichen planus can cause disease in the nail matrix and can present as anything from mild dystrophy to severe nail apparatus destruction and scarring. It sounds as though we're ready for another skin tip. Lichen planus can affect many parts of the body. When assessing a patient with possible lichen planus, it is important to assess the oral mucosa along with the genitals, non-mucosal skin, scalp and nails. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients, and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. Shifting back to oral lichen planus, how is it diagnosed, Simone? So diagnosis is based on clinical presentation and traditionally confirmed histopathologically by oral mucosal biopsy. As discussed by Laura, oral lichen planus has a wide and varied clinical presentation and symptoms vary from no symptoms to mucosal pain and burning sensations, especially with spicy or acidic foods or even when using regular toothpaste. According to the WHO diagnostic criteria to confirm a diagnosis of oral lichen planus, you need to meet both clinical and histopathological criteria. 
Clinically, lesions have to be bilateral, more or less symmetrical, and have a reticular pattern or lace-like network or slightly raised grey-white lines. Other lesion types like erosions or atrophy are accepted as a subtype in the presence of the reticular lesions. An incisional biopsy is taken by a representative area that is clinically in keeping with oral lichen planus, such as a white striated lesion for histopathological confirmation. Thanks, Simone. What are the histological features of oral lichen planus? On histopathology, a band-like lymphocytic infiltrate will be observed in the lamina propria and liquefaction degeneration in the basal cell layer can be identified. In the epithelium, apoptotic keratinocytes or savat bodies can be identified. Technically, a diagnosis of oral lichen planus requires fulfillment of both criteria, otherwise it's called an oral lichenoid lesion. Because oral lichen planus has a varied clinical presentation, sometimes, we may suspect other conditions so other investigations are performed, such as serology to screen for things like lupus that has a similar presentation when occurs in the oral cavity. In addition, if we suspect a contact allergy, patch testing may be done. Sometimes a drug reaction can present clinically like oral lichen planus too, and when this happens, can occur with NSAIDs, anticonvulsants, antihypertensives, antimalarials, or antivirals. Like Laura mentioned, the important thing to know about oral lichen planus is that it's a potentially malignant disorder and so needs to be checked regularly by a specialist with expertise in oral medicine, at least once a year. How is oral lichen planus treated? So treatment aims at symptomatic relief by the use of topical corticosteroids. When other sites of the body are involved, a multidisciplinary approach is required as systemic management may be warranted in these cases. How do you use topical corticosteroids in the mouth? Good question, Annalise. So topical treatments include steroid creams such as diprazone OV ointment or even mouthwashes containing dexamethasone. The frequency of use will depend on the severity of pain and the clinical presentation, such as in the ulcerative forms, as this type is commonly very symptomatic. Large ulcers may even need intralesional steroids. We often use topical antifungals in combination with topical steroids, as Canada species are known to be opportunistic in nature and so can flourish. When gingival tissues are involved, such as in desquamative gingivitis, a sodium laurel sulfate-free toothpaste, or SLS-free toothpaste, is advised as those with SLS tend to cause irritation and mucosal discomfort. And we don't want our patients to cease toothbrushing as this will lead to a lot of other problems. Thanks, Simone. Could you please elaborate on the role of oral hygiene in helping manage lichen planus? Sure, Aaron. Management must be comprehensive and includes close attention to oral hygiene as increased bacterial and fungal load can complicate oral wound healing, especially when erosions are present. So it is also important that the patient sees their dentist regularly for checkups and tartar or calculus removal, as periodontal disease will make these mucosal conditions worse. In addition, really good denture hygiene is important, and these need to be cleaned properly, otherwise can act as a microbial reservoir and if ill-fitting, can cause additional mucosal trauma. How are more severe cases managed? In our more severe cases of lichen planus that are not maintained with the general and topical measures and intralesional methods, 
We utilise various anti-inflammatory and immunomodulating approaches and may require immunosuppression. These are determined by the type and the associations. We rely on regular topical and general measures alongside the systemic agents. As in the treatment of RAS and other inflammatory conditions, we will use short courses of oral steroids if required, but often at higher doses and for longer periods than in RAS. Other immunosuppressants that we may utilise in severe oral lichen include methotrexate, mycophenolate mofetil, and other agents reported and used by other centres include azathioprine, cyclosporin, and thalidomide. We often use adjunctive agents, including oral retinoids such as acetretin, hydroxychloroquine, and dapsone in our oral lichen patients, and tetracyclines and nicotinamide for the less severe ones. We tend to follow up our mucosal lichen planus patients regularly, determined by the severity of disease and the type of treatments required. Laura and Simone, I know you work together in a multidisciplinary oral mucosal clinic to manage these challenging cases. What is the role of the multidisciplinary team in oral mucosal disease? We initially started our combined clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital several years ago with our oral mucosal physician colleague, Dr. Tammy Yap, for the purpose of expert multidisciplinary team care in our dedicated immunobullus service. We, however, quickly found a huge need for care of other disorders of the skin and mouth, especially lichen planus and other more common inflammatory disorders, and our clinic has expanded significantly over the years. The specialty of dermatology certainly includes the mucous membranes, but the oral medicine physicians bring significant expertise to diagnosis, biopsy, and a management of these disorders. And I find working alongside my colleagues like Simone very beneficial for the best management of the diseases of the mouth. Thus, the role of the multidisciplinary team for these patients is to bring subspecialty expertise together to offer a more holistic and comprehensive approach at the same place and time for these patients. We might shift across to another oral mucosal issue that might be seen by the multidisciplinary team, oral mucosal malignancy. Indeed, it is a clinician's worst nightmare to miss a cancer. What are the red flags for malignancy in the oral mucosa? Well, Annalise, the most important red flag is a persistent ulcer that does not heal after two weeks. A single indurated ulcer is a common presentation of oral cancer. Oral squamous cell carcinoma represents more than 90% of cancers in the mouth. Other oral cavity malignancies also present as ulcers and include salivary gland neoplasms and hematological malignancies. In addition to this, a persistent red or white patch or a strange lump or bump, especially if singular, needs to be investigated to rule out dysplasia or malignant change. It's time for another skin tip. Any persistent ulcer, white or red patch in the mouth that has been present for greater than two weeks should be referred to a specialist in oral medicine for consideration of a biopsy. So Simone, how are suspicious intraoral lesions worked up? Well, Aaron, when other causes are excluded, such as trauma... Prompt referral to a specialist with expertise in oral medicine is indicated. Initially, the lesion is biopsied for histopathological confirmation. If this is confirmed as a cancer, the patient is referred to a hospital that treats head and neck cancers where the patient will be seen in a large multidisciplinary team that includes oral maxillofacial surgeons and or ENTs, 
plastic surgeons, oncologists, radiologists, pathologists, speech pathologists, and nursing staff. The patient will undergo further investigations, such as CT scans, PET scans, and MRIs. The cancer is staged, and then excision and rehabilitation is planned by the entire team. Simone, I can remember a time that I was working in a remote area and I saw a heavy smoker in his 60s presenting with a dental abscess, given he was unable to see a dentist for several weeks. On examination, alongside the dental abscess, I also noted an extensive irregular white plaque to his left buccal mucosa. I was concerned regarding the wait times and difficulties getting him in to see a specialist with expertise in this area. I also wondered, as a GP with very limited experience in this area, should I do the biopsy? What are your thoughts on this, Simone? So in this instance, it is important to note that there are tertiary centres always available for phone advice. There are a number of complexities when taking a oral mucosal biopsy. It is important that the appropriate biopsy is performed so that a critical diagnosis is not deferred. The mucosa can be fragile and if an incorrect site is biopsied, the diagnosis may be missed by the pathologist. Simone, what does an oral mucosal biopsy entail? Good question, Aaron. So biopsies can be either excisional or incisional, depending why they are done. However, punch biopsies in the oral mucosa are rarely indicated and have limitations, especially from the pathologist's view, as are difficult to orientate. We were discussing referrals for oral mucosal issues. How do we choose which specialist to refer an oral mucosal issue to? I can think of so many times I've been sitting in my consulting room trying to decide whether it would be most appropriate to send my patient to a dentist, maxillofacial surgeon, ENT, dermatologist, or oral medicine specialist. That's a really good question, Annalise. I would suggest that if the lesion is highly suspicious, an oral medicine specialist can be contacted, even just for a phone review. Alternatively, a tertiary centre is always there for advice. As we come towards the end of our podcast, what are some of the rewards and challenges you find working in this area? So the most rewarding aspect for me is the patient interaction and helping patients understand their diagnosis and providing advice for symptom management. The challenges are when the patient's condition is not so obvious, or as I like to put it, doesn't really fit into any box. And this is when a multidisciplinary approach is really important. I also find patients with oral manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease quite interesting, as it can take a very long time to come to a definitive diagnosis. And so this presents its own challenge. I think from a dermatologist's perspective, the challenges can be learning to familiarise oneself with the particular anatomy of the oral mucosa, actually knowing how to thoroughly and easily examine all areas in the mouth, ensuring that one has good lighting and removes all dentures and bridges whilst keeping the patient as comfortable as possible, and learning about the various types of presentations of oral mucosal disease. Sometimes normal anatomy, such as tongue papillae, The linear alba on the buccal mucosa due to the occlusion of the teeth, simple biting injuries, and geographic tongues look really concerning and scary and are actually just part of the normal mucosal anatomy. Biopsies are not easy to do and sometimes are best done by an oral medicine or max fax or ENT surgeon specialist. 
and it is critical that the correct area is biopsied so as not to miss the important diagnostic histopathology. We often require fresh tissue for immunofluorescence and culture too, and we need to ensure that the ulcers are biopsied at the edge, not through the centre, for determining the level of the split in the ulcer, and that suspicious lesions are biopsied in the area of most concern. Our dental, oral medicine and MaxFax colleagues are excellent at utilising nerve blocks and topical anaesthetics to make the patient really comfortable too. Thanks, Laura. And on the flip side, what are some of the more rewarding aspects from your perspective? Some of the most rewarding and interesting cases we've managed recently have been in patients where we found certain allergens have been the cause for their symptomatic ulcers, including spices such as cinnamates and preservatives such as benzoates. Patients avoiding these agents have had complete resolution of their disease. Being able to diagnose oral manifestations of Crohn's to expedite treatment and referral to our gastroenterology colleagues and allow our patients to receive management of their inflammatory bowel disease has also been very rewarding. Also, many of our patients have overlap disorders, especially pemphigus vulgaris and lichen planus, and it's challenging and interesting to tailor treatments for both these conditions at the same time. Of course, the most rewarding cases are the ones where our patients feel that their symptoms have improved and their quality of life and ability to eat and get through their daily activities without pain is the most satisfying and rewarding part of our practice. Well, that concludes part two of our episode on oral mucosal disease. Thank you, Simone and Laura, again for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. Thanks so much again, Aaron, Sarah and Annalise. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me on again. It's been great. We would also like to thank our co-host, Dr. Aaron Robinson, and the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have any skin conditions that require attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive Institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.